The sermon this evening is a topical sermon called Interpreting the Pandemic, and uh, it's going to be based on a number of different passages, but three of them we will read as our scripture reading. So the first one is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. So Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then we will turn to Luke 13, 1 through 5. There were some present at the very time, at that very time, who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worth, Galileans were worth worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then we turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 3 through 8. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe you're getting tired of hearing about the pandemic in sermons. At some point, we will go back to sermons that don't mention or refer to the pandemic, but it seems to me that at this time, it is still very much top of mind. We need to be thinking about it in the light of the Word of God. It's a huge matter in all of our lives, and how we respond to it is also a matter of great importance in terms of our relationship with God, in terms of living the Christian life. So this evening I want to preach a topical sermon on a number of passages from the Word of God that are applicable to the whole question of what I am calling interpreting the pandemic. Now I've been doing that in other sermons, such as uh, when I said that there's no question that the pandemic is a judgment of God against a sinful world. But as we began already to see last week when we looked at Revelation 6, 1 through 8, there is a certain complexity uh, to that subject in Scripture. 
as we saw from the book of Revelation, at least part of the reason for these kinds of calamities in history is that they are calls to repentance. The book of Revelation mentions a number of times that people did not repent because of the disasters that they were experiencing, and that implies that at least part of the reason that God sends or allows these things to happen is in, is that in order is that people might be awakened to the wrath of God against sin and turn to him in faith and repentance. The fact is there are quite a few passages in the Bible that speak to this issue, and looking at a number of them can help us to think in a more nuanced way about the meaning of this pandemic, a way that uh, reflects more fully the biblical teaching. So last week we saw from Revelation 5 and 6, 1 through 8, that the disasters that happen when the Lamb opens the seals of the scroll of God's plan, that they belong to the coming of the kingdom of God, which is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a comforting overall perspective about the meaning of so-called natural disasters that come and that, that perspective comes directly from a specific text of Scripture. And the idea of sticking to close to Scripture is an important one. It's always important, but I, I want to emphasize it's important for our subject of interpreting the pandemic. And what I mean is that we should be hesitant to make pronouncements about the meaning of this pandemic and why God has allowed it to happen that stray very far from specific texts of Scripture. For instance, it's common for for people to say in these days that God has sent this pandemic because of the unspeakable evil of abortion or because of the widespread sexual immorality of our time. Now, there's no question that these things are evil and that the wrath of God is upon those who are involved in these things and are not repenting of those sins. But we do not have biblical justification to say God is sending this specific judgment for these specific reasons. We stick closer to Scripture when we are less specific about God's reasons for sending this pandemic at this time. We know in general terms that it is an expression of the wrath of God against sin. But Scripture warns us against being too confident that we understand what God is up to in any specific calamity other than what he explicitly teaches us in his word. And that's why we read Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The ESV Study Bible has a very helpful note on these two verses in Isaiah 55. And the note is this, quote, In the immediate context, that is in Isaiah 55, immediate context, this is an appeal to people to exchange their own sinful thoughts and ways for God's, which are higher, nobler, and more magnificent. 
But more broadly, theologians have recognized the incomparable creator is far above his finite creatures and beyond their ability to describe him or comprehend him fully. Though they may know him truly, such knowledge is always partial and imperfect. And then this, this sentence in particular, because God is perfectly wise in all his thoughts and ways, his people can take great comfort amidst, amid hardship when inevitably they are unable to understand the mysteries and the tragedies of life. Now that's a wonderful and a comforting as well as a humbling sentiment. God is so far above us that we cannot comprehend him fully, nor can we comprehend fully his reasons for his providential dealings with us and with the world. We can know some things because he has revealed them to us in his word. But where God has not spoken directly, then we must be very hesitant to speak. There are other passages that make this same point. One of the key passages that addresses the issue of why God allows suffering is the whole book of Job. Now, the book of Job specifically addresses why the righteous suffer, and that is a different question than the question why the unrighteous suffer. But even so, the book of Job teaches us that we should be very hesitant when it comes to interpreting the disasters and the calamities that God allows to come upon people. Job's friends, so-called friends, they thought they had God all figured out. They were sure that Job's suffering was linked to sin on Job's part. Job himself wanted answers from God, and God's response was basically to point to his own infinite greatness and the inability of sinful human beings to understand his ways. Here's a taste of what God says to Job from Job 38, verses 1 and 2 of Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's what we must avoid, words without knowledge. Much better to say that we don't know than to utter words without knowledge. And then God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then God goes on to ask Job question after question after question, which reveal, all of them, that there are so many things that are utterly beyond Job's ability to know. And Job gets the point. Job gets God's point. In Job 40, 3 through 5, we have the first part of Job's response to God. Then Job answered the Lord and he said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice but I will proceed no further. Job 42, 1 through 3 is also a wonderful expression of the kind of attitude that God is looking for from his people. 
Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this <coughs> that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered <coughs> what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Concerning the, the current pandemic, there's no question there is an aspect of God's judgment upon the wicked. But while we can say that generally, there are also many other aspects, such as God's mercy in warning the wicked to flee the wrath to come. <coughs> and because God's ways are so much higher than our ways, there is more that we do not understand than what we do understand. And the book of Job teaches us that a godly response is to acknowledge that there is more mystery in these things than there is knowledge. We can know the things that God has revealed to us in his word, but there is a great deal about suffering and the meaning of suffering that is hidden from us. And it is God honoring to acknowledge God's infinity and our own finiteness, and thus limitations. A couple of passages in the Gospels that point us in the same direction. There's that story of the man born blind whom Jesus ended up healing. Stories told in John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples, they see a man who had been blind from birth, and the disciples, they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the assumption that they are making is that this man's blindness was a judgment from God because of somebody's sin. There is an here is an example of suffering. Somebody's sin must be the reason for it. Now, in a very general sense, that is true. All suffering is rooted in the curse due to Adam's sin. But the specific reason for this man's blindness was not the sin of him, him, himself, or his parents. Jesus goes on to say in John 9, 3, it was not this man, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus heals the man. So the reason, there was a reason, other than the sin of this man or his parents. The man's blindness was not a judgment for the sins of specific people. This man had been born blind, had lived many years as a blind person, <clears throat> so that Jesus might heal him, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now we might have a problem with that as a reason for this poor man to have to live so many years as a blind man. But then we assume that we are capable of <clears throat> accurately evaluating the relationship between this man's suffering and the fact that the works of God might be displayed in him. But we have huge limitations when it comes to making that kind of evaluation. We are finite and we are sinful. We simply cannot understand fully the importance of glorifying God, and because we are sinful, we tend to overemphasize the significance 
of this worldly comforts and wellness. The point is that we are very limited when it comes to understanding God's purposes in allowing or sending suffering into people's lives. And Jesus' point in his comment about the reason that this man was born blind powerfully makes the case that there is not a simple calculation of sin leading to punishment in specific instances of suffering. Now that was one man. When it comes to the pandemic, we are dealing with billions of people who are affected. And God's reason for the pandemic might be different for each one of them. The story of Jesus and the man born blind teaches us that we cannot make a simple calculation between sin and suffering. And so again, there is reason for us to acknowledge then that other than the broad categories of scripture, it is honoring to God if we confess ignorance when it comes to the specifics of God's reasons for something like the pandemic. Let's look at another passage, very relevant to how we think of this pandemic in the light of the Bible. Luke 13, 1 through 5. That passage is short enough for me to read it again. There were some present at that time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there were some people from Galilee who had been slaughtered by Pilate while they were sacrificing. People around Jesus told him the awful news of this event. From what we can get from this account, they were just passing on the sad news, but Jesus took the opportunity to teach an important lesson. He asked the question, do you think that these Galileans were sinners and all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So Jesus is addressing the common idea that if people experience suffering, it must be because of some sin in their lives. And the way that Jesus asked the question suggests that it is tempting for us to think that there's a relationship between how bad a person is and the degree of their suffering. And it is interesting that this addresses precisely the reason, the idea that God has sent this pandemic now because the world has reached a certain level of wickedness. It's that idea behind all the pronouncements that the pandemic is God's judgment because of abortion or because of homosexuality or the general level of wickedness in the world. So we could rephrase Jesus' question for our context and ask, is this generation suffering this pandemic, because we are worse sinners 
than previous generations? Is it that God did not send this pandemic during the 1950s, say, because things were not nearly as bad then as they are now? That's the kind of sentiment that is behind any pronouncements that God sent this pandemic at this time because we have reached a certain level of wickedness that is so terrible that God must now pour out his wrath in this particular way. And that is exactly the sentiment that Jesus is addressing here when he asked, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And Jesus is saying that that is the wrong question to ask when we hear about tragedies. He's saying that it's wrong for us to think that people who experience tragedy are somehow worse sinners than others who do not experience that tragedy. And experiencing that to our time means that it's wrong to think that this tragedy is happening because this generation is more wicked than earlier generations. Jesus asked a similar question about another recent tragedy of his time of those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? Again, wrong question. Jesus directs our thoughts away from the sins of others, and then towards our own sins. So he says in verse 3 and 5, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If we see other people suffering, we should not be thinking about how they deserve to suffer, but how we deserve to suffer because of our sins. Jesus is saying that when tragedies happen, God is calling us to repentance. God is telling us to consider the fact that we deserve to perish. And that puts us on the same level as everyone else, as far as what we deserve is concerned. Any hint of a thought that other people deserve to suffer in a way that I do not deserve to suffer is profoundly wrong and dangerous, lacking in insight into our own sinfulness. When we see others perish, our thought should not be that they deserve to perish, but that I deserve to perish. And that's how Jesus instructs us to think also in this current pandemic. Many people are perishing In this pandemic, unless I repent, I will likewise perish. That doesn't mean that if I repent, I will not get the virus. It means that repentance is the way not to perish eternally. Now, Jesus' words here apply in a slightly different way, depending on whether we are believers or not. If we are not trusting in Jesus and living a life of turning from sin and turning to righteousness and obedience, Jesus' words are a warning that if we continue on the way we are going, we will perish eternally. The call to repentance 
is short form for the call to turn from our sins, to believe in Jesus, to receive his forgiveness, to live the life of being one of his disciples. It's framed here as a warning, but it's a warning motivated by grace. And it is the good news that there is a way for sinners not to perish. It is the way of repentance, of turning from sin, which also involves turning to Jesus for forgiveness and the fullness of his salvation. But Jesus' words here are relevant to believers as well. If we are believers, we are assured that we will not perish. Jesus is our Savior. He paid the penalty for our sins. We are right with God. We are adopted by God. We live in hope of final salvation in the presence of God forever. We have eternal life. It is well with our souls. But this call to (coughs) Jesus... This call of Jesus to repentance is a reminder for us that the Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance. If we think of the current pandemic in the light of this passage, we who confess Jesus as our Savior, we should be asking ourselves whether repentance is an ongoing reality in our lives. Clearly, Jesus is saying to all of us, That when we see people dying in tragedies, our focus should not be on what others deserve, but on what we deserve and the absolute necessity of repentance. There's also the gospel offer of salvation through faith in Jesus' name. And that is glorious. Oops. Here we go. Things are moving around on me here. That's glorious beyond words. But what Jesus is emphasizing here is the necessity of repentance. And so that gives us an important interpretation of the current pandemic. For believers, it is a call to examine ourselves and to remind ourselves that repentance is an essential part of the Christian life. That means fighting against sin in our lives. It means pursuing growth in holiness which includes love for God and love for others and purity and fellowship with God and looking forward to enjoying God and his victory at and beyond the return of Christ. It means fighting idolatry, which means fighting against living for the things of this life. And indeed, there is much for us to think about when it comes to the priorities of our loves when so much of what we love and enjoy is under threat in this pandemic and in its aftermath. And so this is a time to ask ourselves where our treasure really is. And I think that all of us will find areas where God is calling us to repentance. One last passage about interpreting the pandemic. And here we go back to a passage where Jesus addresses large-scale disasters and hardships directly. Listen to Jesus' words, Matthew 24, 6 through 8. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. 
but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. First, Jesus tells his disciples not to be alarmed, and the reason they are not to be alarmed is that all these things must take place. And to remind you that this is the must of the divine plan. As we've seen recently in one of the sermons on Revelation, when the Bible says that certain things must take place, it is because they are part of the plan of God. They are part of what is written on the scroll of God's plan that is now in Jesus' hands. And because of this, the disciples are not to be alarmed. Now, that's not an exhortation to be passed over lightly. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Jesus is saying that wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes, and we might add pandemics, must take place because they are part of God's plan for the coming of his kingdom, and therefore his disciples are not to be alarmed. It's normal to be alarmed when such things happen. They are alarming. They are scary. You don't know what is going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen to you and to your loved ones. There is great uncertainty. The possibility of pain and suffering is high. These are the kind of situations that alarm people, as we see very clearly in our time. And yet Jesus expects his people not to be alarmed. And the reason he expects his people not to be alarmed is that these things are all part of God's plan. They do not just happen, they must happen. And that's supposed to calm us. The fact that all of this is part of God's plan is supposed to keep us from being alarmed. And the reason, of course, is that God is good. God is mysterious. God does things that are alarming to witness and to experience. And yet, because of who God is for his people, they are not to be alarmed. Another way of saying the same thing is that we are to trust that God would never do anything to harm us if we are his people. God loves us. He has proved it supremely by sending Jesus for our salvation. He is highly invested in our true and eternal good. He knows what we need better than we do ourselves. He has promised to bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. And in the the light of who God is and who he is for us, We are called not to be alarmed. But notice something else about Jesus' words about the calamities that must take place. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 8, All these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus compares huge earth-shaking calamities to the beginning of birth pains. The pandemic is a labor pain. And what this and similar labor pains will bring forth 
is the end of the world at the second coming of Christ. And that end is a good thing for the people of God. That end is the goal of our salvation. It is the goal of our lives. This is our hope. This is when our faith will be made sight. When our Lord will descend and he will say, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's Matthew 25, 34. And this is how Peter describes the posture of the people of God in 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are waiting. Birth pains, labor pains, that's what this pandemic is. It's one of many through the ages. And they are the agony that leads to the anticipated birth. I have it on good authority that labor pains are painful. And yet they are a particular, a very particular kind of pain. The pain of labor is not the pain of despair, but a pain of hope. Pain of labor is not enjoyed, but it leads to joy, and there is a willingness to endure it because of the birth that it leads to. Labor pain is so very different from pain that leads to death. This is a pain that leads to joy, and it is the anticipated joy that gives labor pains their peculiar character. The pain is real and very intense, and yet there is hope and anticipation in it because of what it leads to. That, Jesus is saying, is how we are to think about the pandemic of this present age, about the calamities, rather. That's how we are to think of the pandemic. There's no minimizing the pain we may have to go through. But Jesus, by comparing it to labor pain, is putting putting it into a positive and hopeful perspective. May God grant to us to be longing towards the glorious future that he has in store for us, that that we may truly experience whatever pain we are or may have to suffer as labor pain, a pain of hope, a pain of anticipation. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do acknowledge that your ways are higher than our ways. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that it is just not our place to have to understand all that you are doing, that there is much room for mystery. There's much room for us to to say that we do not know. We do thank you for the insights that you do give us in your word. And we do pray 
that you would enable us <clears throat> to, to learn from those insights, to acknowledge your greatness, to acknowledge our own smallness, and to take seriously the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, that when we see people suffering, we are to think about our own need of repentance. Lord, help us to take that seriously during this pandemic, that we may consider our lives, that we may consider whether we are indeed living the lives of repentance that you are calling us to live. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to suffer in hope. We thank you for the image of the birth pains leading to a hopeful end and for how, how that speaks to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we experience these things in this way. May the pains that we suffer, the sorrows that we may have to go through, may they point us to the future, to what all this is leading to, so that we may go through it all in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.